Uh, my name's Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and uh, a, a warm welcome if this is your first time you're just visiting. And, and of course, a welcome to everyone, to our regulars as well. When you look at this picture, um, think about what you focus on. Uh, what, are you, what are your eyes drawn to in the picture? I don't know about you, but when I look at this picture, I'm drawn to the mountains in the background, and I suspect most of us do that. Uh, There are things in the foreground, but that's not what we focus on here. Um, When I look at it, my eyes are drawn into the far distance, and as we do that, you don't really focus on the rocks and the green grass in the foreground, do you? You find yourself caught up in the big picture and the massive distances and size of this landscape. Now look at this photo. It's very different, isn't it? It's taken from someone who has a very different way of looking at a scene. Imagine being someone so into flowers that all your focus is on the detail of this one plant right in front of you In the photo, we don't really know what's in the background because we're not focusing on it. Uh, You can see a pretty hazy outline of what looks like a waterfall and some green grass, but not a lot else. Now, you may be thinking at this point, well, that's all very nice, Marshall, looking at pretty flowers and, and mountains, but what on earth are you on about, Marshall? Here's the point. We're starting now, today, from today, looking at the book of 1 Samuel, which is a story, a narrative uh, from the Old Testament. It's really about three key characters that we'll see as we go along. Uh, Samuel, Saul and David. Reading the Old Testament can be tricky. We can often come to it like we come to these two pictures. Some of us treat the Old, picture, the Old Testament like the first picture. We can see the big picture readily enough. We can see the far horizon. And we understand that the Old Testament is ultimately a signpost pointing to the New Testament and particularly Jesus. But the trouble is, in doing so, we can easily miss out on the details of the story. We can easily miss out on the foreground. On the other hand, we might be like the photographer in this second picture. We we might focus on the details of the story, understand how the plot works, how the characters development and all that, but we don't really have an idea of the big picture and how the whole Old Testament fits together and then how the Old Testament points to Jesus. Now, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that what we need to do is to combine the perspective of these two pictures. To have that big picture of the Old Testament leading us to Jesus always in mind when we read the Old Testament, but at the same time of letting the details of the story speak to us like this third picture. To be able to look at the man in the foreground, see the details, but at the same time, see the mountains in the background. Today, as I said, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel and we'll be focusing on chapter 1. 
Firstly, we're going to try to stand back and take in the big picture of the book and how it acts like a signpost to our need for Jesus and what he did. Then we're going to change camera lenses and focus on the people and the details in this chapter and particularly on this woman called Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and see that she gives us a model to understand something of who God blesses and how he works. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for the book of 1 Samuel and we thank you for this story of Hannah uh, in this uh, first chapter. Father, we ask that you'll give us wisdom to know how to look at the big picture and the little picture at the same time. Help us to understand what your word is saying to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Samuel in the big picture, one Samuel in the big picture. Whenever we come to an Old Testament book, it's important as a first step to understand where it fits in to the whole picture of the Old Testament. So here's a, 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 a um, diagram which you probably won't be able to read. You think, what's going on here? What it is, it, it, it's kind of the big picture of most of the Old Testament. Um, and the squiggly line represents kind of the high points and the low points of God's people uh, in the story of the Old Testament. The red arrow is where Samuel comes, right in the middle, book of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, at the bottom of the squiggly line, the spiral, uh, half hidden is, is the words, no, no, it's Samson actually. Next to the um, arrow, you can see Samuel going upwards. Then there is Saul and David. Uh, that basically is a territory covered in uh, the book of 1 Samuel. The spirally line is the book of Judges that we looked at uh, a short while ago. That is the bottom of Judges is a low point of God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, they had reached then the deer. Uh, and then the line goes upwards uh, because Samuel, 1 Samuel as we'll see, is a new beginning and it's a new hope. It represents a new intervention of God to save his people. God personally intervenes and miraculously provides Hannah with a son who would be a godly leader. When Samuel leads Israel, things go well. But then we see the depressing cycle. Don't really see it here, but there should be a downwards cycle. Uh, dip again uh, as Saul becomes king because Saul proves to be a depressing king like the depressing leaders of Judges. And it seems like we've got the book of Judges all over again. The people want to be like the nations around them. They ask for a king, so God gives them a king and in Saul they get the king they deserve. But God rejects Saul and then raises up another king, David. And this time, things go well. You may know that David is a man after God's own heart. A true king who serves his people with humility. 
And David is the ideal king who is like a spoiler for Jesus. He foreshadows Jesus, the ultimate king. So that's the big picture of 1 Samuel. That, that's, that's the direction we're going, on, going in. But now as we focus the camera lens and hone in on this first chapter, we see the story of an ordinary, humble woman who God cares about as an individual for her own sake. And at the same time, Hannah has a crucial role in this big picture of God working out his plans to save Israel. But as we are introduced to Hannah, we see that Hannah has a problem. She's suffering. She desperately wants a child, but is unable to do so. We're introduced to Hannah in the first couple of verses. Elkanah has two wives, Penina, who apparently has a whole tribe of kids, we don't know how many, and Hannah. And the first thing we hear about her is in verse 2. We've got the um, Bible verses up, you can follow along, or you can follow in your Bibles. Verse 2 says, Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, the name Hannah means grace. God has been gracious to Hannah. She has a husband who loves her. But Hannah has a hard time seeing that because her lack of children is eating away at her. It's like a giant hole in her life that she can't fill. To make matters worse, Penina, the other wife, takes every opportunity to rub her face in it. She torments Hannah for not having kids. Now, in the story we hear that Elkanah and his two wives make an annual pilgrimage to a place where, called Shiloh, and that's where the tabernacle is. Tabernacle is a place where God's people would go to make a sacrifice and meet with God. And we're told that Penina particularly used these journeys to the tabernacle to, promote, to, to provoke Hannah. But in contrast to Penina, Elkanah, as we saw before, loves Hannah. Verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, that's of the food from the sacrifice, because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Notice the cause of why Hannah cannot have children. Twice we told in this verse, the Lord had closed her womb. It might have seemed to Hannah like the cruel roll of the genetic dice. But the author is very clear. This is God's doing. And so for us, if you're battling ill health, suffering in some way, physically or mentally, or perhaps you are actually like Hannah, you're married and haven't yet been able to have children, or maybe you're struggling with a difficult relationship, maybe it's, it's someone at church or, or, or at, at, at work, maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe it's your spouse in a difficult marriage. 
It seems like life has dealt you a bum deal. The Bible consistently tells us that actually God is behind those things. Whether or not he actively brings about these difficulties or just allows them to happen, in either case, he's in control over all that happens in our life. Now, you may think, well, thanks very much, Marshall. That just makes it worse. At least if it was random chance, I can't blame God for what's going on. But if he allows my suffering or if he's the one responsible for it, what sort of God does that make him? Well, the Bible never, is never interested in trying to defend God's actions. It doesn't give us answers about why God allows us to suffer. But what we're told very clearly is that he uses all things, good and bad, for our good. And very often it's when we're suffering that we're most open to God. And that was certainly the case for Hannah. Because her suffering drives her to pray. Have a look at verse 9. Once they had finished, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost in that Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And this is her prayer. Verse 11. She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Hannah knew that the only way she could ever have a son was through a miracle by God. She was powerless to make that happen. She was desperate. This was a desperate prayer. This was a bold prayer. It actually uses the same language that's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. If you remember that part of the Old Testament, it's before um, God is about to deliver his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. The point is this. God cared then about the suffering of the nation of Israel and he acted. Hannah believes that God is going to act in the same way in her individual life for one humble woman who is suffering. And we'll see that Hannah was right to be confident that God would listen, that he would act. And friends, I want to say that we can be confident because you're not too small for God. Your suffering isn't trivial in his eyes. Well, as we go on in the story, God listens to Hannah's prayer. After praying in the tabernacle, she goes back home with Elkanah. And then, picking up the story in verse 19, Elkanah made love with his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. 
She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Again, this is the same language as the book of Exodus, the same word. God remembered his people in Exodus. Now God remembers Hannah. He had compassion on Hannah. He gave her what she asked for. Does God always do that? No. And I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you'll know that. That often our prayers go unanswered or at least we get an answer that's different to what we expect and not necessarily the answer that we want. But what we can be assured of is that God always listens. He always hears our prayers. He may not always give us the answer we want, but he always will give us the answer we need. I'll say it again. He may not always give us the answer we want, but he always gives us the answer we need. But in this instance, God does give Hannah what she asks for, a son, Samuel. Now, there is more going on here, though, than just a story about a faithful woman and her prayer. There's another layer going on here. Remember that when we read the Old Testament, we need our two eyes. We need one eye on the details of the story and the characters in the story, and we need the other eye on the big picture. What is Hannah in the big picture? What's going on here? Well, scattered through the Old Testament, there are a number of stories of women unable to have kids. You might be able to recall some of them yourself. And each one of those stories is like a big signpost to saying God is about to do something significant here. God uses each of these children born in a miraculous way as key figures in his salvation history plan to save his people and ultimately the world. You may be aware of Sarah, Abraham's wife, who is also barren. She gets pregnant with Isaac and God's promises to Abraham come to fruition through Isaac. Then there is Rachel, Jacob's wife, also barren. Now Hannah, And then as we jump forward to the end of the Old Testament, there is Elizabeth, wife of Zechariah, mother of John the Baptist. All key figures in God working to save his people. All pivotal moments in God's story of salvation history. Well, as well as that, it's significant that Hannah devoted Samuel to God. If you remember in verse 11, Hannah made the promise that if she has a son, he would be devoted to God for his whole life and no razor would touch his head. Now, what's going on here? What she was doing was making something called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite was someone who was devoted to God, usually for a period of time. It wasn't usually their whole life. This was something quite extraordinary that Hannah was promising. 
but they belonged to God in a special way. They weren't allowed to cut their hair. They weren't allowed to drink alcohol. So Samuel grew up a Nazarite and, and remained a Nazarite all his life. And God used him to open the way, as we saw earlier, for ultimately for David to become king. Remember I said at the beginning that David was the high point of Israel's kings. He was the ideal king, but actually David wasn't perfect. The Old Testament says on the one hand that David is the bee's knees, he's the king after God's own heart, but then he fails spectacularly. And then the scriptures talk about David's throne lasting forever and a son of David who will save the people. Of course, we'll get to that later on. We won't go into the details now. But that brings us to another Nazarite, another miraculous birth, John the Baptist. He was also a Nazarite. And like Samuel, John opened the way for the son of David, Jesus. And so in this way, 1 Samuel 1 points us to Jesus and it's like through this chain of events sparked by Hannah having this boy Samuel, God opens the door that leads to the coming of Jesus. That's the big picture. But then there are other connections to the big picture in this chapter as well. We've touched on the idea of Hannah, uh, that Hannah and then Samuel are crucial to God's plan to save Israel. So remember that they were at, remember the, the squiggly line and the timeline that they come after the book of Judges. They come right at, after the low point of Israel's history, pretty much. When Hannah comes along after the book of Judges, the book of Ruth is in between, but Ruth is also um, set in the time of Judges. So, so Hannah comes along right, uh, right in the footsteps of, um, of the book of Judges. What we see here is God intervening, he's finding a way to save his people from the massive hole that they've dug themselves. But alongside Hannah and Samuel... There are other characters in this story who represent a continuation of the old Israel, the old rotten Israel that we see in the book of Judges. In chapter 1, it's subtle in chapter 1, but it's here. In chapter 1, the priest at the tabernacle is a guy called Eli. Now, Eli is a tragic figure. He's actually not corrupt. He's not ungodly, not, at least not in an obvious way. He doesn't set out to rebel against God. But with Eli, it's more a matter of what he doesn't do than what he does. Because Eli's fa fatal flaw is that he fails to lead. He is passive. He allows his evil sons that are named Hophni and Phinehas to serve as priests. They exploit the people without, um, in, a, in a very obvious way. 
But Eli fails to act. He fails to do anything about it. In this chapter, we just get a couple of hints at the contrast between Hannah and Eli. Have a look at verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. Hannah stands up, ready for actions, and her action is to pray. Eli stays sitting down, not moving, passive, with no action. I I think that's deliberate. You might think I'm drawing a long bow here. That's okay. Uh, But I think it's there. I think it's subtle. But I think it's a deliberate contrast. Then Hannah prays and Eli is watching her. Have a look, pick it up in verse 12. As she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. What Eli does here is he looks at the externals. He looks at Hannah's mouth, sees it moving with no no words coming out, and he comes to the wrong conclusion. He looks on the outside, but not at the heart. He doesn't recognise true prayer when he sees it. And as we go through 1 Samuel, we see the same old rotten Israel as a thread that continues alongside this faithful new line of Hannah, Samuel, David. And this rotten Israel, Eli's family, and then Saul... All doing the same thing. They're focused on the externals. They're focused on going through the motions, religious rituals. But there's no focus on the heart. There's no relationship with God. There's nothing there. But Hannah, with her heart focused on God, is the first in this line of godly people that we see in 1 Samuel, who God uses to save his people. Hannah, Samuel, David. A lovely story of God answering the humble prayers of a woman whose name means grace, setting up a bigger story of God showing grace to his people and ultimately the world. God miraculously intervenes to bring about the impossible. He opens the womb of a barren woman to set in train the plan to save his people through a godly prophet, Samuel, then David, the king after God's own heart. God finds a way to save his people. But then, as we said earlier, David isn't actually the one to save Israel. He's only the shadow of the son of David, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus not only saves Israel, but he is a saviour for the whole world 
who dies for our sins. That's the big picture. But to finish off, I just want to come back to Hannah. Because Hannah's story is also our story. And not only does God save the world in the big story, he also finds a way to save us, the little people, us ordinary people. The Hannahs, the Mikeys, the Durettes, the Cathys, the Trevors. Sorry, guys, I had to pick on you. But I could, pick, I, I could go and name all of us because the story is the same for all of us individually. God cares for you. He is concerned for your troubles. At the same time as he uses the worldwide church to bring in his kingdom and at the same time as he holds the nations in the palm of his hand. There's his little picture inside this big picture. And ultimately the story of the Gospels is the story of Jesus' journey to the cross to deal with the sin of the whole world and to defeat Satan and the powers of evil. That's the big picture. But on the way, Jesus, this same Jesus, stops and lets a prostitute pour perfume on his head. This same Jesus goes out of his way to talk to one lonely Samaritan woman. This same Jesus not only heals lepers, but he touches them and becomes unclean himself. Jesus loves us, the little people. He listens and cares for our needs and our troubles. He is a God of both the big picture and the little picture. And friends, we are involved in both stories. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the book of 1 Samuel and particularly this story in chapter 1. We thank you that uh, in the middle of this grand picture of the way that you orchestrated events uh, that set in train the coming of Samuel and David and ultimately the Lord Jesus, you used this one woman and Father, not only did you use her for that big picture, but you cared about her as an individual. You care about her prayers, you care about her desires. And Father, thank you that we are also Hannah. We are also in that picture. Thank you that you care about us, you care about our suffering. And even though we don't understand difficulties and suffering, we know that all things work out for the good of those who love you and you use us, you use those things in our life. Help us to see that and be encouraged by that. In Jesus' name, amen.